Because really, you have an opportunity to kind of step on holy ground. You get to see um, God do some amazing things in the lives of these girls and show up and absolutely knock their socks off. And um, it's an invitation for you to have the opportunity to have a front row seat. So if you're here and available, I, I encourage you to do that if you're able. It will be a, it will be a, great, uh, a great week. Well, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and um, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, uh, looking at this, uh, you know, taking it as the Summer on the Mount. And uh, we are in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Winford, you did a great job this morning leading us in communion. Thank you. Thank you. It was so worshipful. The elders uh, of our church, um, most of the time, you do not see them up front. They are behind the scenes, and they're praying, and they're leading, and they're directing us, and shepherding us, and watching over us. And so, the, the brief glimpse that we have of our elders on Sunday morning is a real treat, so thanks for, for doing that this morning. Um, all right, so Matthew chapter 7 uh, we're going to look at the first six verses, and starting it this way, I'd say this. We live in a culture today where we wonder, uh, when we wake up in the mornings, who is the internet going to be mad at today? Cancel culture has become a national pastime. Take away baseball for a year. Um, or any sports for that matter, and we end up making sport of each other, it appears. It seems that that has become more prevalent in the last 12 to 18 months than any time I remember in my life, probably yours as well. What we've done is we've taken real and important issues. They're real and they are important. And yet, we've made them secondary issues. The hate and distrust and mudslinging, that all has become primary. We want to know whose team you're on. And depending on what team you're on, we have a whole armament of weapons with words and tweets and posts that we want to sling at you. It's not safe to say anything. And the cultures bled into our dinner tables at the holidays. I know you all feel this. The tendency to rush to it's not just limited to online interactions. We're quick to judge our family members. We're quick to judge fellow church members or fellow Christians. We're quick to judge other churches and other ministries. We're quick to judge those who hold different political positions. We're quick to judge those who may not look like us or talk like us. And the tendency is, is the opposite of how the Bible instructs us to relate to each other. 
James chapter 1, verse 19, James says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. There's a book that came out last year by an author, Daniel Darling. The book's Away With Words is what it's called, Away With Words. In the rush to speak up, he says, in our imperfect longings for justice, we're tempted to do just the opposite, to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. And he reminds us, our humility grows in the soil of the truth that we are not God. You're not at the center of your own universe. You're not the master of your own fate. You're not the arbiter of right and wrong. You cannot find sufficient reason for your existence or fulfillment in your existence from within. He concludes, in trying to become God, we actually become less human. The passage this morning that we're going to consider. It's about judging. And th these are examples of, of how we're, we're not to judge because God's ultimately judge. Now, we're going to qualify that statement, however, because while believers, we're not called to judge. We are called to discern between right and wrong, but we're not called to judge in a way that only God judges. God has a place that we do not occupy. So, what he's aiming at this morning, he's aiming at discernment, and he's going to speak strongly to us here in the beginning about, about judging. And then he's going to lead us to what discernment looks like, and discernment, it comes through this priceless truth of the gospel as the gospel has worked its way into us. See, the gospel, the more that it changes us, as painful as it can be sometimes, it, it comes to be the most valuable things in our life. And the gospel is the only thing that can heal us. And it's only through gospel healing in our own lives that we're able to offer healing to anyone else. So look with me. I'm going to read the first six verses. And uh, to orient you so you know what we're listening to, he's going to give a principle in verses 1 and 2. And then he's going to give us two examples, two analogies or metaphors, or even some commentators think these are many parables, if you will. And there'll be two of them. And so listen to how Jesus says it on the mount. As his disciples are gathered and the crowd has formed around them. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but 
do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to hear these words. Not just to hear them, but to understand them. Not just to understand them. But, Father, by the power of your Spirit, I pray that we would we'd live this out. This would, be, this would be part of the change in our life as we're being transformed into the likeness of your Son. And so we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. The title I gave this early in the week, and I never changed it, so I might as well share it with you. I thought, well, surely I'll change this. Um, Judge not, and some of your friends are pigs is the title of the. <laughs> There's a judgment that Jesus forbids in the first two verses of this section. Judge not that you be judged. And then he goes on to say this sort of warning that for with the judgment that you pronounce, you're going to be judged. And the measure that you use, it'll be measured to you. And so he begins, it's this strong imperative, this negative imperative, judge not. Then he gives us the reasons. So it's, so it's clear there is a judgment that Jesus has in mind that we should not do. And we're commanded not to do it. Now, the word here in the Greek, the word behind this word is krino. It's the word we get criticism from. It can be interpreted a couple of different ways. The first way that it can be interpreted, and we see it used this way in the New Testament, is uh, it can mean to evaluate, to assess, to, to analyze something. It's used that way often in the New Testament. It can also be translated negatively, can be interpreted to mean to condemn. It is also used that way in the New Testament. So it's always the context that determines the meaning. So the question is, which way is Jesus using this? In the evaluation sense, the analyzing sense, or is he, is he using it in, the, uh, in, in the, uh, the judgment sense, the condemning sense? It's clear that in this teaching, we should not condemn others. Essentially, what he's saying is, condemn not that you be condemned. It's being critical and petty disparaging, spirit-killing. You're not called to judge in this sense. Criticism, this is important. I, we haven't talked about spiritual gifts in a long time, but 
Criticism is not a spiritual gift. It's not. Some of you are really good at it, but it's not a spiritual gift. And it's not to be confused with discernment. Secondly, not only are you called not to judge in this sense, you're not qualified to judge in this sense. It's assuming the place of God. It is assuming omniscience. It's assuming perfect knowledge about everything all the time. And you don't have that. You're not called to judge. You're not qualified to judge. Not only that, you don't have the capacity to judge in that way. See, God's judging, his judgment is radically and fundamentally different from ours in that God is both judge and justifier. God's pronounced the judgment on his son and offers justification to all who would believe upon his son. His judgment comes hand in hand with the offer of effective forgiveness. God's the only one that can truly judge because he's the only one who truly knows all the facts and the motives behind the actions and the circumstances behind the incidents. So one of the reasons Jesus gives us in verse 2 is because the judgment that you use to bludgeon others, it'll come back to you. It'll come back on you by others and ultimately God. And I'll talk about that in just a second. So while we're not to condemn others, we are in other places in Scripture, we're commanded to make judgments based on proper evaluation and proper analysis. We are to be discerning. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Stop judging according to outward appearance. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. So, you see, when we rush to judgment, we're judging by outward appearance. We don't have all the facts when we do that. We don't know the whole story. We're not making a righteous judgment in those moments. Instead of rushing to judgment, Scripture teaches... We take our time, we gather facts, we examine the evidence, we assess the situation. We want informed conclusions. Proverbs eighteen seventeen: the first to state his case might seem right until another comes and cross-examines him. Proverbs eighteen thirteen: the one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and a disgrace for him. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul says, test all things and hold on to what's good. So there's some practical considerations. We can take them throughout Scripture. You can read through the Proverbs. The Proverbs has much to say about this. One, get the facts first. Don't rush to a judgment. Don't assume the worst. Be diligent to gather relevant information before reaching any conclusions. Man, wouldn't that save a lot of us the embarrassment of things that we have in haste posted online or said in a conversation 
Later on, the Holy Spirit convicts you of that. You think, oh, I can't believe I said that. Get the facts first. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, instructs us we should investigate privately. He outlines this process that begins in private, eventually becomes public if no resolution's been reached, but you begin in private. And this can be applied to any situation. You investigate privately, you confront privately, you correct privately if all possible. You don't add fuel to the fire of our cancel culture by posting or retweeting information that you don't know that's true. Aim to restore thirdly and not to condemn. In the event that it's confirmed somebody's wrong, your goal should be to restore them, not to condemn them. If you have something to say, you have something that's clearly come your way, you have something that clearly you need to address with somebody, what lies at the bottom of your motive? Is it to condemn them or is it to restore them? Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. and Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is love one another. Now, this is a, what Jesus is speaking about. We're, we're not to condemn. We are to be those who are discerning. And discerning begins with clarity. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. It's the first illustration. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? Then he says, hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's. The prerequisite to biblical discernment is clarity. So there's four words that are going to be used in these three verses. And the four words all speak of, of seeing. Look at verse 3. Um, why do you see the speck? Literally, that's what the Greek word means, to look at something. Just as, as I'm looking at you right now, to see. In, in verse uh, 3, at the end of it, you also have... Um, but do not notice. It's a word that means to, to understand or to consider. You, you look out and you see the splinter in someone else's eye, but you don't spend a great deal of time thinking about it. You, you don't consider. You don't fasten down on it the, 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 because the beam of, that's in your own eye. Verse 4 you have a word that's not translated in the ESV. There's only a couple of versions I looked at that translate it, but it's in the second half where it says, 
let me take the speck out of your eye, and then there's a comma. And then in the Greek, it has behold or pay attention. There is a log in your own eye. Literally, behold, look at this. And then verse 5, you have see clearly. Then you will see clearly with eyes wide open. See, what he's talking about is we're guilty of, without clarity, making drive-by judgments. And it's usually the character of people who do not take self-examination seriously. Self-examination is hard. I mean, the eye is the most sensitive part of the body. And when we've not examined ourselves, we find that we're clouded by our own sin. We, We actually are very much like David. See, our ability to judge is fallible. It's stained by sin. One of the most beautiful illustrations of the fallibility of human judgment, the the blindness that so often comes to us in the midst of our criticism of others, it's the story of David. So David, you know, back in 2 Samuel, the men should have been out on the battlefield. Uh, David stays home. One evening, he goes out, you know the story, looks over the balcony of the palace, sees a beautiful woman, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So, as the story goes, he takes Bathsheba to himself. It results in this adulterous union. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. That adds a problem onto the sin. And so, David, he inquires about Uriah, had him come home decides if if Uriah can spend the night with Bathsheba, he'll be none the wiser. But Uriah is a faithful servant. He'd not even enter the house while the men were on the battlefield. David finally sends word, put Uriah in the thickest part of the battle and see that he's killed. And that gets carried out. And David, he suffered as a result of this. And the Psalms, man, they... They outline how he suffered. You go to Psalm 32, it's this terrible experience that he has and how his whole life seemed seemed dry and it was suffering. And so finally, Nathan comes to him, the prophet Nathan, his friend Nathan, and comes and tells him a little story. And he says to David, hey, David, since you're the king, why don't you discern this? There are two men, one's a rich man, one's a poor man. The rich man had everything that he wanted and the poor man had nothing but a Little bitty lamb. A traveler came to visit the rich man. He hated to spend on the traveler any of his own property. So you know what he does. He goes and he takes the lamb of the poor man. He slays it and offers it for dinner. And David, he becomes really incensed when he's told about it. how How dare he? Surely, this man should die for the thing that he did. And then you remember the famous words of Nathan. You are the man. See, in the midst of our sin, 
than our lack of fellowship with God. Our judgment is fallible. It's impossible for us to see clearly. And in the midst of our criticism, it's good for us to remember that our, our judgment that we're making at that moment, it's fallible. Our judgment with which we judge others is the judgment with which we expose ourselves. And so how do you help someone hurting from the speck in their eye, given the reality that we all have logs in our eye. He doesn't say if you have a log in your eye. He says when. And the first thing is it begins with self-examination. Are we sensitive to that because, and we have to ask the question, is that me? One writer said there can be no speck detection without beam elimination. Is that me? Is that, what's the condition of my heart? Am I in fellowship with the Father? Am I reminded of the gospel in my life? Secondly, I would say earn the right to be heard by them. It means investment. It also means that we're willing to speak truth in love to a person. Humbly, lovingly, confronting, correcting, inviting change. For the sake of their relationship with God, we want to minister God's grace, humbly going in the full light of the knowledge of ourselves. We should give the benefit of the doubt. You can measure others either harshly or generously. You know, the standard by which you use, the measure by which you use is the measure that will be returned upon you. It's not talking about the final judgment of one's salvation. But it is looking at the evaluation of our character. Tozer said, the deepest of all deep things is the heart, and no man can fully know his own. And so it follows that no man can ever know the heart of another. It's, it's saying this benefit of the doubt says, look, I'm going to assume I caught you on a bad day. Or maybe I wasn't at my best. None of us wants to be judged on a bad day, in the worst moments. Finally, I take this from Larry Crabb don't mistake a scar for a stain. It's easy to believe a blemishing character to be something malicious. We believe the worst about what we see may actually be a scar that represents God's healing or continued healing in the life of his child. Don't mistake a scar for a stain. Scars come from fighting battles. They leave us with a limp. Sometimes it's it's good for us to understand why somebody's limping where they are. Well, that's the first analogy Jesus gives. And then he gives the second analogy in verse 6. Look at it again. It really is one of the most odd things that Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if you go to, they have these books like the hard sayings of the New Testament or, you know, like hard passages of the New Testament. This likely most often makes the list. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. 
Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's clear as mud, isn't it? A young woman, she, the story goes, she asked a, for an appointment with her pastor to uh, speak about this sin that she was aware of and that she was worried about. And so she makes the appointment. She sits down with the pastor, and she says, Pastor, I've become aware of the sin in my life, which I cannot control. Every time that I'm at church, I begin to look around at the other women, and I realize that I'm the prettiest one in the whole congregation. None of the others compare with my beauty. What am I to do about this sin? To which the pastor said, Mary, that's not a sin. It's just a mistake. As a pastor, sometimes these stories, I just want them to be true, you know, whether they are or not. But discernment. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 6. I think, in fact, that's what he has in mind when he starts in verse 1. But, he, but he's got to get to discernment by explaining to us, you know, judgment and hypocrisy because we're, we're so prone to that. We need minds and mouths that are discerning. Because Jesus wants us to be gospel people. We, we want to feel the weight of the value and how precious the gospel is in our lives. Because when we do that, it produces this humility. And it'll keep us from wrongly judging others. It'll keep us from neglecting our own sin. And so it's a picture of discernment. He wants us to be discerning. He wants us to know the value of the pearls we have. He wants us to remember dogs or creatures that return to their vomit. Pigs or animals that wallow in the mud. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus, he compares the, the message of the kingdom to a pearl. But he says some people, they don't have the capacity to grasp it. They need their eyes opened supernaturally to be able to see it. And the thing that's holy here, described as pearls, is, is likely the gospel that he's speaking about. It's the good news of the kingdom. It's for us to realize in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He wants us to know the value of the gospel, of our salvation, because that value creates humility, keeps us from condemning judgment, allows us to humbly discern Knowing the value of the gospel means you're measuring things based upon the right standard. When God becomes the standard, when His Word, His Son, His Spirit's leading and empowering, then we have something to measure by, things that are trustworthy. Well, let me give some practical considerations here. A list of seven 
flow out of what it means to be discerning. First one, you have to be sensitive to what people can handle. Many of the people in ancient Israel were pig farmers. They had to feed the pigs. And Jesus says, look, I want you to be smart. They don't appreciate the pearl. Don't give it to them yet. Jesus told the crowd on more than one occasion, there are things you are not ready for yet. Some people are not ready for certain things. You have to be sensitive to what people can handle. Secondly, learn to adapt what you have to say to your hearer. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, makes this observation, that Jesus answered Pilate's question, but he stood silent before Herod. He says, you, you do not handle a Pilate and a Herod in the exact same way. You must become an expert in knowing what to give each type. You answer the questions of Pilate, you say nothing to Herod. John 11, Mary and Martha, Jesus handles those two women in completely different ways. Learn to adapt your message to your ear. Devote yourself to listening before speaking. I have 20 illustrations of this and time for none of them. But I know you understand. Fourth, rather than seeking the persuasion to your point of view, you're seeking to win someone to Christ. You know that when you read throughout the Gospels, Jesus never gets caught up in secondary matters, even when he's baited. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they would bait him all the time on secondary matters, political issues, um, theological things they were battling about. Jesus doesn't get caught up in those. It's not that he didn't have an opinion about them. It was secondary to what his primary goal was. Here's another one. Be patient with the pace of God in someone's life. Be patient with the pace of God in someone's life. If you're married, you are one flesh. But I can promise you, you both are not growing spiritually at the same pace. I know, I've seen, I see it happen. I, I, you know, I see a wife, she gets involved in Bible study and it's really exciting and comes home and you know, lays the whole deal on her husband who's not that interested and then because he's not that interested, he's you know, he's throwing water on the fire, and then she's, you know, it, it creates this deal that all of a sudden Bible study, this really great thing, this really great growth and spiritual progress that's happening, 
becomes a wedge in the marriage. I remember when I was in seminary and I'd come home from classes at night. It'd be 10 o'clock. Leslie's tired. She's a little kids all day. And I mean, I am wired. And I want to sit in the bed and I want her to be awake and alert and hear every pearl of wisdom that I gained in the last hour and a half. And it was easy for me to interpret her being tired at the end of the day with her disinterest in the holy, magnificent God of the universe. To which she would say, no, I'm just tired. Do it with our kids, too. We've got to be patient with the pace of God in our children's lives. Which means we don't need to sermonize everything. Sometimes they just need to hear yes, no. That was dumb. You're grounded. Because I said so. Sometimes that's all they need to hear. Let's say two more things. And this speaks to discernment. It is okay to back out of a destructive relationship. There's a guy, uh, Brad Hambrick. He's the pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in North Carolina. He's also an assistant professor of biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes some of the very best stuff on forgiveness. Brad Hambrick, and all of it's on his personal website. And he says that he believes one of the things Jesus is teaching here is that there's a time when you have to back out of abusive and destructive relationships. He says it this way, you you may remember geometry class in high school, you were taught all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Similar relationship exists between forgiveness and trust, reconciliation. All trust and reconciliation are rooted in forgiveness, but not all forgiveness results in trust and reconciliation. He talks about boundaries. I mean, not boundaries in every place that every time your feelings are hurt or somebody disagrees with something you say, those aren't boundaries. Those are emotional walls that you're setting up. But boundaries, true boundaries exist to divide things. And he says the boundaries that we, the only boundaries, but the boundaries that we necessarily erect are boundaries between wisdom and folly. It's not between me and you. I'm not erecting a boundary between me and you. I'm Erecting a boundary between wisdom and folly. I'm I'm not rejecting you, he says. I'm not giving up on you. But I do refuse to participate in foolishness. Structure, if you want a picture of it, go to Proverbs. Read the beginning to the end and circle every time you see fool or folly and every time you see wise or wisdom. The Bible has its own boundary. It's okay to have that boundary. If you're interested, I'll leave you to find more that he says if you 
want, email me, I can point you in the direction. Finally, I'd say this. Clothe yourself in humility. Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 3, but in your hearts, here's a guide for you, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with, what does he say, gentleness and respect and having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Then a few verses later in chapter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do not judge, lest you be judged. I would say, clothe yourselves in humility. The humility willing to find the logs in your own eye. The humility to discern for the sake of the gospel in your life. If you would bow with me. Father, help us this morning. This is not material that we're unfamiliar with. This is not a... We don't have a hard time bridging the gap between the first century audience on the side of the mount and, Father, a 21st century audience here today. We are surrounded by, we're swimming in a culture that rash and quick and critical and condemning judgment has become commodity. And so, Father, I pray we'd hear your words. I pray, Father, they would bring to us a humility and a reminder of your role as judge. And, Father, your role as justifier in our life. That on the one hand, all of us deserve the judgment, the condemnation of death for our sin. And Father, on the, by the same token, on your other hand, you have sent your son Jesus to, to take our place in that judgment, to die for our sin. So that your judgment is satisfied and you in turn can offer us justification, salvation, redemption, forgiveness. And Father, when it comes to that judging, that condemning, that you're the only one qualified to do it and the only one that can do anything about it. And so, Father, we want to embrace that truth of your gospel that it would transform us we'd, we'd set aside judging and take up instead self-examination biblical discernment with eyes to be able to see the difference between wisdom and folly 
and for their eyes to know. What are those that we confront? What can they hear? How can they hear it? And Father, what's their greatest good? So help us in that. We, we pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.